Uh, hello and welcome to today's podcast slash Zoom recording. Uh, I'm Anthony Santa talking today once again with Dr. Michael Smith. Uh, today we have another uh, fun-filled conversation, hopefully, uh, as we usually do. Michael and I get behind the microphones and in front of the cameras lately with Zoom, uh, all things being what they are, uh, to talk about things related to health. Today's topic, sanity, self-care, and six more weeks of isolation, uh, a pretty um, powerful topic for the day. Michael and I had a brief conversation about this earlier, and we probably could have recorded parts of that because it was pretty darn good. So if you're in for a treat today. Uh, Michael, I'm aware that there might be some people here who aren't aware of your expertise and your experience. You want to bring them up to speed with who you are and what you know? Uh, sure. Well, my main focus is in integrative medicine and more specifically in autoimmune disease. Uh, that's my focus because I'm an autoimmune patient. So that's for 25 years really narrowed what it is that I research, what I think about. And one thing I've noticed in the last, you know, two and a half decades of my practice is that about 80% of autoimmune patients and 60% of just chronic illness patients in general uh, have experienced some amount of trauma in their lives. So that's also not narrowed my focus, but made me much more aware as a clinician to the reality that a lot of what's going on for people around their health is, as most of us, I think, intuitively realize, uh, inner turmoil, distress, reactions to the pressure of the day, pressure of the week, and things like that. So uh, today's conversation is going to be specifically about that, but even more specifically about the fact we're all about three weeks into self-isolation because of COVID-19, right. which is going to be pretty oppressive for anyone with chronic illness, and especially those with autoimmune disease, and obviously especially those with things like complex PTSD, and I can't imagine what this is doing people who are suffering with addiction. It's uh, an interesting conversation to be having because of the times we're in, but I think it's also an important conversation to be had uh, with regards to uh, health in general. Um, and I'm sure that'll uh, make itself more apparent as we get into it. Um, as far as uh, this podcast goes, um, we're embarking on something kind of new and different. We're talking more on camera these days than we are on um, across from each other with a couple of uh, high quality microphones. Um, we're doing what we can to make the best of things and hopefully uh, this works in the best possible way. <laughs> and Michael's goofing around. For those of you just tuning in by audio, Michael's goofing around with his uh, with his face and with his microphone. So we're already well, having I'm, fun. Here. I'm actually thinking about hanging my telephone earbud microphone off of my glasses so that I can keep it right in front of my mouth because I'm a quiet speaker because I'm used to being in a clinic with thin walls. So you learn to basically speak like a very monk-like gentle guy. <laughs> and then you're on a podcast with your you know, earbuds in and you sound like you're, uh, no, whispering really quietly. <laughs> well, hopefully, um, as as we uh, as we get better, we're already better at this, but we can only get better at this. Uh, we've been doing this for the past uh, <laughs> how many how many years, Michael? Uh, five. Twenty thirteen is when we started. Oh no, I think we've been really doing the podcast thing for about three. We've known each other for at least five, though. Right. Okay. Well, for uh, enough time that we should know what we're doing, but we're <laughs> constantly well, learning. Let's not go with shoulds. We have a conversation about sanity here, so. Well, I got called out the other day <laughs> um, on my LinkedIn profile. Instead of saying professional podcaster, it said professional podcaster. Oh, oh. 
I'm a podcaster. <laughs> no, no one listening can see all the gang signs we're doing, but you know. Podcaster. <laughs> Crazy. Anyways, um, for those of you tuning in, uh, this is what the embarrassed face looks like um, on video. Uh, if you're listening, you're just going to have to take my word for it. Uh, Michael, let's dig into um, the whole idea of today's topic, sanity, self-care, and six more weeks of isolation. Um, where did you come up with that title? What's What's the... What's, what's the sort of gist of what we're going to talk about today? I think the easiest way to bring this up would be to ask you, because I've known you for a while, what are you doing as a person? You have roommates uh, for your sanity and self-care, given that it's been a few weeks, couple of weeks, and there's a few weeks coming. We no one really knows exactly what the, the details are, but if you were to do your like top three things that are keeping you sane and maintaining your self-care, what would you, what would you throw down as, you know, uh, yeah, your, your way of keeping this together? Um, I'll be honest that one of the things that I'm really good at doing is not a lot. Um, and so I've been <laughs> doing simple things like, uh, going for walks, um, I know that when I walk and when I talk, if I'm on a call with a friend and we're trying to work something out, um, if it's professionally or personally, uh, that actually helps um, make the brain that exists from my eyebrows down, meaning my body, um, get in on the conversation. I'm not all stuck in my head. And uh, so walking for me, you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes a day uh, has been wonderful. And doing that at different times a day, doing it early in the morning, in the middle of the afternoon, doing it at, uh, at dusk or when it's dark. Um, I mean, the place that we live is quite uh, magical and quite um, small. So I can actually afford to get outside and not actually bump into anybody or cross the street when I do, things being what they are. Uh, the other night I went out for a walk and I managed to see something bright in the sky and I thought, oh, it's a jet. No, it's a UFO. And then when I got home, uh, put it up on Facebook and somebody said, no, that's Venus. So, yeah, just appreciating small little things that I wouldn't have seen before. Stopping, uh, so walking is one thing, but actually stopping along the way and enjoying the view. Um, looking in people's houses is always a lot of fun for me. <laughs> now it's especially fun because my mind just wanders and like, geez, I wonder what people are doing in there. You know, seeing little kids um, scribbling at pieces of paper at the, at the kitchen table or seeing somebody cooking. Um, I, I can't say how much I really enjoy the solitude and the quietness that's actually fallen over the city. Um, it's a very uh, comforting thing to know that other people are hunkered down and, and, and trying to do that sort of comforting thing for themselves in the best way that they know how. Mm -hmm. um, that would be the biggest thing, uh, is walking and getting out. Um, I've got a bike. I like to ride on my bike. That's another solitary thing to do. Um, I can't really get too far in town because town's not really that big. So I've gone around it a couple of times. <laughs> uh, again, that's more physical. On the home front, I've been doing things like um, experimenting with food. Um, uh, the, ex the current experiment is um, what does it take in order to make oat milk? Uh oh, and it's um, there's a there's a thin thin. A line that goes between this is drinkable and this is a liter of snot. 
<laughs> milk is just <laughs> a weird and wonderful thing. So, you know, I'm I'm paying attention to things that are normally important to me, but I'm doing it with a lot more intention, I guess, is how I would say all of that. Well, this is a bit of an aside. If you ever want to do a, an episode in the future on saponins and the goods and bads of them and why they can turn into snot, we could throw that on the list of things to talk about. <laughs> That'd be another sanity, self-care, snot, and six more weeks of isolation. Maybe we should rename the episode. <laughs> and saponins, because that's what and makes it all like that. Snot, <laughs> saponins, there you go. I'm drinking soap. Mmm, tasty. Um, so anyways, you asked me what I'm doing. How about you? What have what what you been up to? Oh, it's been an incredible adventure, I have to say. And I'm aware that people may be wanting to get into the content, but um, the context of this content matters. And as Anthony's telling his story, I'll quickly tell mine. Uh, for the listener or the people watching this, you know, in the social media world, let's all slow down a bit, get to know each other and, and really appreciate, you know, that... Uh, we all, we all have a bit more time and a chance to be a bit more reflective, empathic, and creative. So as I share my story, reflect on your own and, and uh, let's all get together as we get into this because I think that's the big lesson now is, you know, let's, let, let's, uh, let's touch in with what's meaningful and, and stay there, you know. So what's been the most meaningful for me um, is my son, he's in university and his university had to shut down. So he had to come and do his self-isolation because his mother has uh, a complex autoimmune condition and is on medication where if he had brought something back home from the plane, that would have been quite dangerous for her. Uh, although I have some autoimmune conditions, I'm not any significant medication right now. So um, this seemed to be the time for him to come and stay with me. And he's 19 and fathers and sons being fathers and sons and, you know, adolescents and stuff. Uh, we had, I think, you know, a couple of, uh, you know, just things to, to sort out, but not really hash out in a way. So it was more a chance to just, <laughs> I guess the picture that comes to my mind is, is two animals kind of sniffing each other's butts and getting to kind of find direction together and, and, you know, Get into that flow and for the last few days it was a very beautiful collaboration you know we share doing the dishes and meals and humor and you know that that kind of just sense of you know who are we to for each other now that you're the adult and i'm the older adult and although i'm your parent i'm not you know your uh you know, the the parent of a child is so different than a parent of a parent of an adult, and and that's something I've been naturally uh, aware of and you know conscious of, and and now I really had that experience. But being locked in for two weeks was quite the rite of passage in a way. So I'm uh, very very feel very blessed about the experience. And he went home last night, so today's my first day, I guess, in the vacuum of self isolation. And I've literally spent time as a hermit in in the context of my spiritual practice. So uh, being alone is quite the uh, home for me and uh, a place of solace and creativity and, you know, meditation and other practice. So um, I'm aware that that's a, not your average experience for people. Most people are much more social and um, really desire a lot more contact and connection and, and, and that. And I love that too, but I also love the solitude and, and the predictable space. Um, so for me, in the sense of sanity, it's been a beautiful rekindling of a relationship and, and a mature version of that relationship. And now I'm kind of looking forward to a, a maybe, hopefully not too many more weeks of uh, 
finishing a book and starting another one and working out our next podcast uh, as we get it ready to go and things like that and having just the space to uh, I don't want to go on too for long forever here, but I've never binged watched anything in probably 15 years. And 15 years ago, you had to buy a box set of something from a store to just like keep skipping from episode to episode. So now I'm sitting on my couch going like, it's nonstop. I could sit here until I pass out. So I've been experiencing the self-care of binging. So I'm pretty, uh, pretty surprised at how enjoyable that is. Um, if I can rearrange a couple of things in my house, I might actually start my uh, autoimmune health solutions uh, cooking show because I want to start making recipes that kind of go along with each part of that uh, protocol that I've been working on for you know decades for myself and other people. So yeah, I'm I'm a a cat with a toy in in a very comfortable room, just looking for a chance to keep playing and enjoying myself and um, really catching up on doing the things that I love to do. Well, it's it's good to hear that you're not um, sitting in a corner, scrolling news websites for all of the doom and gloom kind of information about um, uh, COVID nineteen. I mean, I know uh, friends of mine who seem to be uh, spoon feeding uh, that kind of stuff to each other, um, and I think that's part of what uh, we're talking about here today is how to. Um, I mean, the topic of the day, sanity. Uh, for me, if I was to do that, that would make me insane uh, quickly and easily um, i try to avoid that kind of information because i i find it upsetting um and and hard to comprehend as well um so to sort of get into today's conversation i, I want to know what um is this going to be kind of a uh, um a prescriptive thing do you have some sort of a formula as to Here's a one, two, three that you can actually do to keep your wits about you. How, how do you see this unraveling today, this conversation? Well, I guess there's not so much a formula, but there's um, there's this expression that's probably gone around for a long time. You know, give a person a fish and now you have a customer. Teach a person to fish and now that person can take care of themselves. Right. So when I think of the context of sanity and there's the literal medical context of multiple diagnostic criteria of conditions that would be considered mental illness or, you know, psychiatric diagnosis. And that's not the subject we're going into. But every one of those conditions has what we call a shadow syndrome or the the little flirting warning signs that things in your life, in your conditioning, maybe something you carry around the genetics or are beginning to push your buttons and erode at your adaptability in a way that may actually be uh, taking any one of us, and I'm sure each of us has that weak link in our chain uh, towards something that feels less sane, less uh, adaptable. And the most important thing about the human mind, uh, I'm a human too, so I always be careful when I say human that I'm not talking from <laughs> outer space or something. Um, one of the most interesting things about being human is that we're the most predicting animals in the world. And we're Predict so sorry. unaware that... Pr predicting or predictable? or predict predicting or predictable well to say predictable kind of makes of the person as the observer sound above and a bit arrogant and disdainful almost you're so predictable right you know but i mean that is in a way true i suppose and especially dangerously true if you have a big manual of psychiatric disorders to think <laughs> about but um, I think predicting is a much more actually if i was to get really precise i would say predict predictingness because each of us has our own quality of, of how much we rely on our 
prediction of control, prediction of outcome, prediction of self-state, uh, prediction of comfort, prediction of uh, blowing off steam, <clears throat> things like that. So uh, that's, I think, the first thing that I would encourage anyone to be aware of is unless you're a Zen master, your first go-to thing in the sense of sanity and self-care is predicting a positive outcome or in the same sense, moving away from a predictable negative outcome. Mm. And I'll come back to that maybe in, in, in a, well, I will come back to that in a bit more detail in a practical sense in a bit. But I would just encourage anyone who's like listening or watching to be like, okay, what, what is my predictable or my predicting this strategies in, in my life to move towards the things that I, I, I know I feel I enjoy or I need? And what are the things that I'm, you know, predicting that I really don't want to see? And at a time where the literal rules of existence have become quite narrow and quite uh, consequential, um, that predicting part of the mind is now accelerated. You know, I often talk to people about the perspective of, um, and I actually say this to people, is that a periscope st sticking out of your head? Because everything that a person's talking about is what they can predict by trying to use distress to, to, you know, make the periscope higher to look over more hills and fences to see farther into the future. And, and that's where most of us get into trouble is that the urge to control by knowing the outcome and, and, and uh, predicting what's going to happen to us is a kind of anxiety or a kind of depression or an almost kind of yin and yang or almost bipolarish you know, dance between the two. Mm. And I've experienced that in my own life and maybe you have as well, you know, but it, it's that, that thing to, to, the first thing I would say is a, and a strategy is check in with what you are predicting negatively and positively. And if you need to journal about it, get honest about that part of you because that's either the most favorable or the most dangerous part of your mind and it's an instinct it's not like a problem it's a periscope it's something you you've had for 10 million years in your dna to to solve problems by being uh, an intelligent you know animal well one of the one of the ideas that you've shared with me in the past before is um um well with most things is how you deconstruct ideas and how you uh, break things down so there has to be some sort of um I don't know mechanics uh, around sanity. I mean, is, is there, there's there's got to be some sort of process as to, you know, as a human, as a human animal, um, what is it that makes me uh, sane or not? And is and I and I ask that for, with the with the the idea that if I knew better what it uh, or how it worked, I could actually um, make it work in my favor. Well, let's let's like you said, let's deconstruct it bit by bit. So the predictable part has to do with how we adapt to our environment. And that's actually the first lesson I learned when I was studying uh, really deep martial arts is how you're adapting to your environment in the immediate moment uh, in the sense of presence and tactics is, is the thing in two tenths of a second that'll save your life or end your life. So if, if you can really own your adaptive sta state more than strategy, uh, you're coming into an embodied state like you beautifully described in your experience of walking and, you know, having a conversation, solving a problem. We're all much better. Well, 95% of us are much better at resolving things, thinking about things and having a relationship with things as embodied people. So to get to the embodied thing, you have to get through all those funny wheels that spin in the mind. And I'm for the people who can't see, I'm doing the ancient symbol for crazy by making little circles around my ears with my <laughs> finger. Okay, so just just an aside here. Um, in North America, we spin our fingers at our temple with our finger going back uh, uh, forward. Yeah. And in certain cultures, I think it's in Japan, they go the other way. Oh, okay. 
finger goes to the back. And if you were in Italy, you'd take your fingers and pinch them together and you'd tap the middle of your forehead. I think that's the same idea. At least I hope that's what that symbol means. Well, well, <laughs> maybe maybe somebody who's got those roots can let us know. And I'm just reminded that in uh, what's called sign talk, which is something I had an interest in when I was teaching Aboriginal education, um, the circles you make above your head with sign language determine if the wisdom is good or the wisdom is crazy. Okay. Yep, same idea. Yeah, so it's uh, it's been around for these these hand circles around your head have been around for a really, really long time. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so... Um, uh, you, you said it there a second about you know the embodiment, uh, the, the movement, um, and I like I like to think that when I move my body, um, it pulls ideas out of my mind. Um, I almost think that there's like little small pulleys and strings that are actually connected to the those little small wheels and cogs inside my head. They get all kind of gummed up and rusty unless I move my legs. Yeah. Those things those things don't move that well. So the uh, the thing that sorry, I'll go ahead. I, I was just going to say, go ahead. Okay. So the first distinction I would encourage anyone to do, uh, and I usually do this at the beginning of any meditation if I haven't been in practice for a period of time, is to make the distinction between a thought, a feeling, and a sentiment. A thought, a feeling, and a sentiment. Okay. So thoughts are usually kind of rational cognitive opinions and plans and associations and things. <clears throat> Feelings are something like being tickled, being scratched, being, uh, I don't know, someone brushing your hair, rubbing your feet, you know, other things like that, where it's a sensation and there's emotional sensation, you know, the classic emotions of, you know, feeling afraid or angry or in love or uh, resentful or grieving. So those are actual in the moment, uh, encompassing your attention as a state of emotion or a state of sensation. But where a lot of people get, I wouldn't say confused, because that sounds a bit judgy, but um, the ratio of, of our experience gets a bit confusing, because when you get caught up in your opinions about your feelings, and your comparisons about your sensations and previous sensations and things like that, you're actually in the part of the mind that is dealing with sentiment. So you might be thinking about grieving compared to the last time you're grieving, and right now I'm this much more sad than the last time I was sad. And if you're thinking about how much your sadness compares to another sadness, you're not experiencing sadness. You're actually having a comparative relationship with your sentiment about sadness. Yeah. Now that might seem like I'm, I'm parsing apart orange peels for the, the sake of chopping them up for fun or some ridiculous thing. But if we're going to speak about the opposite of sanity, which is a, a present sense of mindfulness and a kind of objective awareness and subjective awareness of you as a person, the distinction between I'm thinking clearly, I'm feeling something that's taken over my attention, so thinking isn't really operational, or that muddy place between the two. And if it's that muddy place between the two where a lot of us get kind of jammed up or really uncomfortable, really triggering previous trauma, triggering addiction, it's to make that distinction and sit down and really think clearly. Again, journaling or working through something or uh, processing something with an actual process, like say cognitive behavioral therapy processing or something like that. There's many, many tools. In fact, I would say every three months, there's a new, unique, beautiful tool. One of my favorites is voice dialoguing, where you actually make up uh, invisible friends in your head that you have conversations with, which may sound crazy, but it's actually a really powerful tool to help you identify the source of the voice and the sentiment and the confusion. So that way we have that, or often much more uh, much more potently, especially with respect to what 
in Chinese medicine, when we would describe the, the more feminine aspect or the more tangible sensual aspect, is if you're, you're feeling haunted by sentiment, take that rational moment and write down the feelings you're having, or more importantly, uh, if you need a, a way to uh, put it in your mind first, draw an outline of your body or even make a stick figure and put a little squirrely spot where you're feeling the most tension or the most, most butterflies or the most discord in your somatic or embodied self. Because we either want to go from sort of sentimental, addictive, mind-juggling and emotional turmoil to objective, rational thought or deep emotional, somatic self-awareness and feeling. You know, the, the Buddha said something uh, akin to, and I'm not a Buddhist, so I'm going to make a terrible hack job of this. So I apologize to every Buddhist on the planet. Um, life includes suffering. And if mm -hmm. you can bring a conscious, compassionate awareness to that suffering and feel into the pain that's underlying it, then you'll be free of suffering. And if you can bring that compassionate, conscious awareness into the pain, then at least you're free from the conditioned need to control it. Because there is always going to be some pain in life and, and intense emotions can be painful. Things that trigger trauma, things that trigger addiction is literally existential visceral pain. So if you can feel it consciously, then it's not going to make you run looping around your head looking for something else to experience. Yeah, I think that might be even part of the conversation a little bit further along the line is like how people actually uh, temper uh, that pain with different things, mm -hmm. um, sugar, alcohol, what, what have you, right? Um, so the, the, uh, the idea that you're talking about here in terms of... Um, understanding feeling versus sentiment uh, like really how do I describe this it's like um, that's the car that we all drive in it's whether or not you're driving with one hand on the wheel or not right and you know when they taught me how to drive it's two hands on the wheel <laughs> and a car analogy is great because I think the thing to be the most aware of is about momentum mm-hmm so, yeah. you know, we're all in our, the vehicle of our mind with our hands on the wheel. And funny enough, I was actually playing with uh, writing a book called Grabbing Your Life by the Wheel. And it would all, the book was going to be about mindfulness. I'm not sure what it'll be called now, but that was on my top list of names. Because it's a great metaphor for the modern world. And self-care, we'll get into more detail in a minute. But it, the beginning would be noticing the momentum and doing everything you can to, I know, and physics we say bleed off momentum you know like to, to find ways to to get back to the place where that momentum isn't running your behavior or your thoughts or your feelings or your sentiment because then then you're looping and looping is the distinction in in my experience between capacity to keep moving towards sanity and creativity and playfulness and self-awareness or looping can take any one of us into the the darkest places and the places we want to do anything we can to get out of if it's drinking or drug use uh or binge eating or you know binge watching into the point of hurting yourself or something mm -hmm. and looping is a very very important thing to understand and that's actually kind of the probably the biggest part of this conversation is to take that apart um did you want to do that right now uh that... sure well it I've got an idea rattling around in my head. Let me see if I can get this out. The the steering wheel analogy for me, um, and the way that you're describing things, <clears throat> driving with two hands on the wheel, 
driving with intention um, is being more um, proactive as opposed to driving around with a uh, hand at uh, the six o'clock position on the steering wheel or two fingers on the steering wheel and hitting a pothole and then going, ah! and trying to regain control and being more reactive, right? I, I, I see how um, this whole process of what you're talking about means um, one, I'll speak personally, how I need to um, really pay attention to where I'm driving the car. Mm -hmm. um, and by doing that, I can actually um, be happier about it, be more grounded about it, be more um, centered when I'm actually doing that. Can I add another bookend? Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I love that analogy because I, like I said, I've been playing with that analogy in my mind for a while. I'd say the other end of that extreme would be a white knuckled driver. Because now the pothole reinforces the reason why you're white knuckle driving. Uh huh. So now you're reacting to the fact you're already reactive and some bad city put a pothole right in your way and it's probably damaged your car and it's going to cost you $700 to fix there. So it could, it could be like distracted driving or aggressive driving. They're both going to create reactive responses. Right. Right. Um, and all of that's to say that, um, I mean, when I'm driving, I'm constantly aware of what's going on right in front of me right now. It's like in the moment kind of thing, right? I mean, yes, there's times when I'm driving, say, long distance when it's like, oh, hey, I'm just going to think about, I don't know, taxes. Oh, wait a minute. There's something on the road. Maybe I should pay attention there. Like, you know, mind drifts and wanders or that sort of thing. But it's driving normally um, is something where I really need to be cognizant of what's going on right in front of me um, or else. I think you've just invented a really new set of terminology. Oh, yeah? Because I, I love talking to you because we always end up with these really subtle distinctions. Now I have in my mind there's soft looping, which okay. is driving down the road thinking about your taxes, and hard looping, which is driving down the road looking to crash into anybody who's got the car from the country you hate. <laughs> or something. Maybe that's a terrible example. I don't know. But like, there's just that the, the yin and yang extremes of uh, what you might call looping. One's distracted, kind of like, nah, 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 and the other one's like, rah, 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 rah. Mm. You know, right. one's going to so, actually probably get you to insanity a lot faster. <laughs> right, right. So uh, look, it, the, the idea of looping, do you want to unpack that? Um, is now the right time to talk about looping? Absolutely. So for those of you who are clinicians or people who really love to understand things as a distinct organized process, get a pen and paper. For those of you who don't really want to know the, the sequential kind of matrix of what human minds do, um, grab your phone. <laughs> uh, just in the sense that I'm going to get into some very uh, kind of hierarchical detail as to what it is that the conditioned human mind experiences and, and how that goes. And I've actually used this with patients uh, many, many times, what it seems like the appropriate conversation, because when you can actually not so much dissect, but appreciate the different layers of what it is that's happening in your mind and what the forces are that steal away your mental freedom. It either encourages you playfully to try something else or it pisses you off so much you're going to actually try and steal it back because someone took it away from you. 
So again, now we're looking at the yin and yang, the soft and the hard, right? So I'm going to introduce everyone to four technical terms about your mind. And we're all going to use, if you don't mind, the metaphoric imagery of a puppy. Because I love puppy metaphors. They, they're they safe, they're silly, they're cute, they're fluffy, they crap everywhere, and you can't get mad at them because they're puppies. <laughs> so if you feel like your mind's crapping everywhere, just go, oh, little puppy, we need to do some house cleaning and learn some new tricks, because that's what's got to happen, right? Okay, <laughs> here, here we go. So uh, you don't need to write this down unless you really want to, but this this is like really potent stuff if, if, you, if you do. Your mind has something called an orienting reflex. It's always looking for what's positive and negative, what's dangerous and pleasurable, right? If you're an animal, it's either I'm, I'm food and that's a predator or I'm hungry and that's prey, you know, or food in that sense. So your mind always has this thing and it's very much like the nose of a puppy. Puppies are always just sniffing around looking for stuff. And that's actually your present felt sense awareness. It's the, the, the sort of frontline membrane of attention that is a meditative state. You just have chosen to keep your nose on the breath, nose on your mantra, nose on the candlelight you're staring into or the, the infinite space of the inside of the mind. Right, but if, if you can't choose where your puppy's nose is going or where your orienting reflexes is, uh, is actually taking you, then something else is compelling you to keep looking for problems or the solutions you're addicted to. Mm -hmm. So orienting reflex, first thing you wake up with, the last thing you have to let go of to go to bed. It, it's the thing that actually tells me where I, uh, where I am in the world, whether I'm safe, whether I'm um, it doesn't tell you anything. It's the thing that helps you get the information to know. Okay. It's an instinct. It's just a nose. That's all it does. Okay. Okay. So for those of us who are seeing this, I'm going to bring an object in front of the camera. For those of us who are not, I'm going to name that object in a moment. And I'm just going to shut up for, believe it or not. <laughs> I'm just going to be quiet for about 10-15 seconds to allow your mind to do what your mind will do with this. Okay? So I'm now holding up a big yummy orange. What do you see, Anthony? Looks like a very large orange. Mm -mm -mm. All right, 10 seconds. So there's a part of the mind we call metacognition, and it's sort of the part of you that's uh, watching the watcher watch, or watching the thinker think. And I'm pretty sure humans are probably the only species that really do this in, in a, a way that we can actually elevate a conscious relationship with what instinctual consciousness is doing if we're aware of it. Uh, in Chinese medicine, we actually call this the wheel of cognition. And my teacher used an orange to, to play this out. So if you see an orange, until your mind recognizes it as an orange, it's just something you're perceiving. But as soon as you recognize orange, which is a memory thing, you can't really relate to it in a meaningful way. But as soon as you can recognize, recognize, cognitive wheel, orange, now your mind goes from perception to memory into association 
which is just ideation and thought. Because for 10 seconds, people were thinking about an orange or they were looking at their phone. <laughs> Can you just easing a little bit? And um, maybe you are allergic to oranges. Maybe they give you canker sores. Maybe you think I need more vitamin C because I want to fight off the immune or boost my immune system or other things because we have those associations. Uh, what my teacher said is, you know, if you're actually hungry, you are actually going to imagine where to begin peeling the orange so you can get at it and how you're going to break it apart. And if you're going to dip it in your yogurt or whatever you're going to do, because the next thing is to plan what to do with that orange. And then you're going to eat it. And then you're going to have the satisfaction of completing a cycle of cognition, right? Which is perception, memory, thought, association, planning, action. So the part of your mind that's always watching you go through that wheel of thought is in a way either wise or bored or uncomfortable or uh, completely just distracted and unaware because there's too many details going on for you to really sequentially go through this. And that's one of the things that you actually learn, uh, say, with cognitive behavioral therapy or trauma therapy. It's a lot of got to, it's got a lot to do with breath work, qigong, yoga, a lot of mindfulness practice is to use cognition to bring your awareness back to awareness instead of looping. But if you can't figure out how your mind actually kind of gets through its natural instinctual kind of process, you're just going to bounce around in associative land or planning land or you know, positive and negative memory land, because you're not in that moment thinking about how to think through and be done with this subject of the mind. And that's really a big part of looping. Mm -hmm. So that's number two. We have your orienting reflex, which is the puppy's nose, and you have metacognition, which is basically your puppy would be chewing on a ball, you know, or chewing on that rawhide bone, or just sort of sort of looking around and sniffing around and um, just being in its environment, doing puppy processing. I'm laughing because I'm picturing puppies eating toilet paper rolls. <laughs> for, for some reason, that seems like a really bad thing for puppies these days. <laughs> bad dog. Bad. Yeah, really bad dog. So number three, and this is such a powerful thing to be aware of. We all have a part of our mind called uh, the default mode network. And it's basically, uh, I used to describe it as a Rolodex because I'm in my 50s and a Rolodex was a really great metaphor. <laughs> Nowadays, I think it would be like your secondary email where you've got all this sort of spam and catch up and friends from wherever you haven't talked to in a long time, where you're just going through previous experiences or things that make you think about who you are, how you fit into the world, what's important, what's not. If you feel confident, you feel insecure, it's going to keep a list of things because your mind wants to work out uh, how you actually operate uh, as a mind so that you can be more effective and more efficient. So when we build up a lot of things that, um, what I would call that Rolodex of things I haven't thought about or cleared off the, the deck of uh, awareness and opinion and, and importance, you know, grudges, conversations that need to be had or completed or maybe had in a better way. So we all have that kind of little checklist of stuff. If we could get that checklist done, uh, we would have so much more space in the mind because we wouldn't have that pressure of instinctual need to process who we are and how we think and what's really important. And are we okay in the world, especially socially, because we're a social primate. So that's why the email scroll comes to my mind is, oh, I got to answer that person. Oh, I got to make up with that person. Oh, I got to pay that bill. I got to, 
you know, never go back to that bar or, you know, whatever it is that, that helps us understand how we fit into the world. And that's an inevitable force. And that's a big reason why people end up looping, if not the biggest reason, because it's a biological, instinctual, visceral, existential need to know how it is you operate in the world and how you fit into the world. There, there's, I mean, that's a big part of drug use is I don't know how to even start with that. I don't trust myself. I don't love myself. I'm not a person who can even figure out this Rolodex. I just want to throw it into a bin and run away. And that's not a place of judgment. I've probably been there a few times in my own life. I'm just saying that if you really want to engage in the opposite of sanity, which is awareness and mindfulness, give yourself space and time to be very quiet. And notice that there's three to 300 conversations you need to have with yourself. And if you don't, you're the puppy chewing on your tail, right? Because it's, 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 it's like mange. There's something going on in there. It's itchy, it's scratchy, it's socially uncomfortable in the sense of mange. And if it gets any worse, you're the puppy sniffing your own butt. Because there's things that, you know, you really have to let go of and move on from that for some reason you're still holding on to or haven't really uh, recapitulated or worked through yet. When, when you talk about that, uh, things to be worked through, um, I mean, I know this, we're not doing um, a psychology podcast, but something about this whole idea of the default well, yeah, mode. We <laughs> well, it, it, I mean, I'm, to the to the extent that where this is the only thing we're talking about, and I don't want to monopolize the conversation around that, but I'm wondering um, if there's more that you could say or suggest for people who are sort of going, um, yeah, hello, that's me. Uh, what do I do with this now? Like, is there is there some sort of um, um, therapy modality uh, help for somebody who's actually recognizing that default mode kind of issues for them um, is their thing all all of it all of it's based on that because that's when you sit down to talk to a therapist and they say lie down and just talk that's what you're going to talk you're talking your default mode network okay, okay. cognitive was... behavioral therapy the buddhist thing about compassion move towards the pain and the next thing i'll talk about is really precise to that okay okay cool well that's uh, for me that's important to understand because um it just makes me think that if um I have people that are important to me in my life who live there. They've got the big mansion. They've got the nice driveway that pulls up and around this place. That 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 space that they occupy is like a Hollywood mansion. It's so big, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, and are you distance, talking about me? <laughs> just kidding. No, the other people. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Like I, I just want to burn that place down because I can see something that they don't. But yeah, they're the that's, ones that's, in the, that's, that's the, the that's the doorknob to addiction, though. Right. Right. Um, it, anyway, it's so, a, it's a, it's there because it has to be there. It, it's it's your inner Yoda. My inner Yoda. There or... is no burn it down. Only be. <laughs> so, um, my. I'm, I can't do impressions, man. I'm so sorry I even tried. I just I'm just <laughs> shaking my head here. Well, I'm, I'm going to try to get past that bad imitation and just say this then. Uh, so what you're suggesting is that here I am in my Hollywood mansion looking out the window at them and theirs thinking, God, they should be doing that better. <laughs> no? Is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> you know. Can, can I put a pin in that if that's the expression? I don't know if it yeah. is, but okay, sure. stay there and try and remember to repeat that, okay? I'm going to scratch some notes down, but yeah. 
um, mansion, binoculars, they're not doing it right. I hope this is okay, brother. It is. Okay. So the fourth thing I wanted to bring up about your mind is called implicit memory. Okay. And implicit memory is based on the best and worst things that happened to you in the first eight years of your life, especially. Implicit memory yeah. is specific to that time frame? The most, like... the most uh, forceful impact that happens on our implicit memory or your memory of you, what's implicit to you as a person in the world is what happened to you as you went from unconsciousness to consciousness to what's called abstract reasoning, which happens around eight. Okay. Right. So this implicit memory will tell you based on what you went through as a child, whether or not you're a good or bad boy or girl or person, you know, in, in the sense of how you feel that you move through the world. So if you had a relatively comfortable childhood and your parents gave you lots of encouragement, your implicit memory is I'm an adaptable, confident person. And if I apply myself, I should be able to meet my goals. And that's maybe 40% of people in a really healthy part of the world. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking Switzerland or something or Sweden or someplace where they actually take care of each other and it's not some constant belittling high school crap show of 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 manipulation because a lot of the west is is high school they never get past high school it's just this adolescent freak show mm. right so you know that that's that's not a great environment if your parents are adolescents and they're just belittling you all the time because they think that's what's going to help you be cool right don't be such a little nerd don't be such a you know whatever if you grew up in an environment that was moderately harmful and i often use you know having say a sick parent where your other parent kind of co-opted you into caring for that person and your value as a child is how well or how badly you responded to caring for a sick person who is an anchor for you in the world. And if they died, you know, in your childhood and you tried everything you could to do everything right, your implicit memory of yourself is really based on how that outcome happens because your family, family recoalesces and everyone did their best or that there's that subtle passive aggressive thing you know, where we all just sort of walk around judging each other about how badly we did or how good we could have done, but never really did. And we walk through our lives trying to compensate for either side of that polarity. Hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, I'm just watching your facial expression, so. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I, um, the, uh, the movie camera in my mind is actually filling in the blanks with what you just said. Okay. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm, yeah, I get it. Okay, so if you grew up in a profoundly traumatic environment, you know, ritualized abuse, and this is going to get into some triggering things for people, so trigger warning, and I mean that very empathically and compassionately. If you grew up in a very traumatic environment, and I did, um, the way that's going to change your implicit memory is profound because you don't have any memory of being safe. So you don't have any memory of what the operational goal of implicit memory really is. You just know that you have to do everything you can to control danger. So that's an instinctual wound to anyone who's grown up with trauma. And then there's a visceral wound, which is <clears throat> clearly there's something wrong with me because I grew up in an environment that, you know, I should have been, I mean, the word I used when I was in therapy was I felt like a bug who should have been crushed under a boot. Because that the behavior around me made it made sense. Like, why doesn't someone just bring out the boot and get this over with? 
right? Again, trigger warning. So I'm just, you know, aware that when you grow up in an environment that says, you know, you can't be a valuable human because no one can treat a human being that way who has any value, you're going to spend a great deal of your life as, as a person uh, and as an adult and maybe even as a parent trying to figure out what it is to, to be in the world when you're fundamentally worthless. You know, and that's a big part of my, my superpower when I was younger is I, I could train for hours every day, study for hours every day, because I had to prove that I was worthy. Mm. You know, and it's, it's given me this great mind and memory because I spent decades trying to compensate for the fact that I had every reason to believe that at some point I was just, you know, that, that you're, it's over now, ha ha ha, you know, the, the big boot finally showed up, right? And I'm not trying to just stir up stuff for myself. I'm just being honest with everyone because here we all are in a place of self-reflection. So let's all be friends and be honest together. You know, this is like the, the world's biggest AA meeting. <laughs> Hi, I'm Michael. And, you know, things could have gone a lot different for me, but I think I'm still growing up and I'm still becoming, you know, the human being I was meant to be. And, and that's the gift no one can ever take away from you. Even if someone has told you that you can never get it back, you can. I know you can. Mm. So implicit memory is the most important thing because it's the cage the puppy lives in. And puppies don't want to right. be in cages. They'll chew on the cage. They'll chew on their tail. They'll chew on their paws. They'll, live, they'll be living in their own feces and things like that because the implicit memory that's told you that the world is oppressive and it's out to get you and that you deserve to be punished and, and belittled and harmed that's that's defining of your existence. I know this is a bit heavy, but uh, this is about sanity or not. Mm -hmm. And there is an opposite. It's just coming to terms with the fact we're all, in a way, moving through the same, you know, paddling across the same river, as the Buddhists would say. I don't know why I'm having a Buddhist day, but here I am. <laughs> so implicit memory is the most important thing because it's the thing that tells you how important your default mode network is or how much it doesn't matter. Right? So this base structure of your mind that's there to guide you to become a good, healthy, mature adult in whatever way that means good and healthy for you is driven by your implicit memory. How competitive, how defeated. Hmm. Right? Your metacognition is going to focus on planning to get back at the bad guy or memories of the worst things that have happened to you. So again, when we're thinking about looping and mindfulness and, and uh, this whole aspect of uh, spending some time in isolation and, you know, if I'm, I'm going to be alone in this place for a while, um, hopefully I don't go crazy. <laughs> uh, but just in the sense that that's what we're all facing is these implicit structures of, of consciousness. But we all have the freedom to be the nose of our puppy. We can all decide you know, to decide to not identify with the cage as much. But you have to feel the pain to open the door. Otherwise, you're going to do the opposite of self-care. You're going to do self-harm. Yeah, I, I just have to say this, that it, it just strikes me that this is, um, maybe I already said it, this is a bigger conversation than anything to do with being stuck at home for two weeks, three weeks, six weeks, whatever it is. Well, it's, I wanted to go from sanity and its opposite, because if we can get to there, the self-care, the mindfulness, and how to be with this for as long as it's going to take, mm -hmm. that's that's my real goal with this, is how to be with this. Right. 
but to to unpack this whole idea of of sanity um is uh you know i'm sitting here quietly but and looking at my notes and writing other things down um has given me a lot to think about in uh, in my life and how it is i show up and uh, thinking about other people that i know and well i mean if we decided to turn this into a therapy thing that we probably shouldn't who taught you to look into other people's windows and decide how good they're doing, man? Who? Oh. Um, hmm. That could be as rhetorical as you choose it to be, and we're probably close to 40, 50 minutes into this, so I don't want to go too far afield, but if you want to be honest about that. Yeah, I'm thinking. Um, it's, uh, it's it's Planet AA meeting, so here we are. <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know that I have an answer. Uh and then you don't need to. It's just to give yourself that, that chance and anyone listening to have that honest, reflective moment of that is the question. What is the implicit memory that makes my mind see problem solving the way that I do? Because I identify with that as a structure of me in the world. Because mm. that's what mm. you're doing with the nose of your puppy. Right. And that's what the, I mean, I do what I do. There's no judgment here. This is judgment-free zone. I wish I had a big sign over my head, judgment-free zone, like completely. But this, this is the point of what, why I share this with patients. And usually it's a much quicker conversation because I do this little thing with a puppy and it's really quick. But um, this is probably one of the most important things that I share is if you can deconstruct your mind, you can open your heart very quickly. But I, I think that's what I'm recognizing is that the significance of what you're saying here is something um, that's, you know, it's 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 a foundational aspect for everything that we're doing together on this podcast, I'd say, right? Um, and then some. And I mean, I've been through every part of this, so I'm I'm not just talking as a textbook nerd. I'm saying this is a person who's on the other side of most of this. Uh, I believe that I've accomplished what I set out to do. I can't be, I can't allow an arrogance or, or a, a casualness with that conversation, but I can also have a sense of a completion to the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just dabbing at my eyes here a little bit. <laughs> so, so when we're looking at looping and mindfulness and puppies, that that's the opportunity of, of uh, modern conscious experiences Take the looping apart, because that's what mindfulness is for. I mean, there's a sort of a modern affirmational mindfulness. Oh, I'm thinking about sex. Oh, I'm thinking about money. And then you bring your attention back to the moment. And if, if you're one of that 40% of people who had a really good childhood, maybe that kind of mindfulness would work for you. But for the rest of us who things haven't gone quite that well, uh, or well enough for us to just be able to turn our attention where we want it to go, we have some other places to take our nose which is to the inside of our puppy, mm. right? Because it's all about where you bring your nose. Because every day you have a choice. Every moment you have a choice. Smell the roses or sniff your butt. I heard something on a podcast the other day that, <gasps> that dogs... Podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I heard... <laughs> I'll try that again. I heard something <laughs> the other day on a podcast that dogs can smell in stereo. They can smell something out of one nostril that's totally different than something out of the other nostril. Yeah, they're so using think... dogs now to actually smell cancer patients more more effectively than we can with every imaging and, and biological device invented so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I mean, being sensually aware and present 
being in your puppy's nose is freedom. Mm-hmm. It's a practice, yeah. though. And I, I would say that, you know, from my own experience, um, um, the act of practicing is good enough. There's no perfect place for me to be, except for me to be practicing to be uh, better. To yeah, be, yeah, enough is, I mean, in Taoism, we actually say, the path is about enough. Mm-hmm. Enough for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So um, self-care, I hear that's a good idea. Yeah, I was just looking at my notes here. Um, and self-care is the next word I saw as well. Um, this idea of sanity, the steering wheels, hand on the steering wheel of sanity, um, leads to the conversation of self-care. Yeah. Uh, uh, and this is a conversation we've had uh, time and again um, about how things are good for you and how things are bad for you. Um, what uh, What did you want to unpack with that with today's well, conversation? Well, I mean, the it pops into my mind that the previous podcast you and I had is Fusion Health Radio, and there's hundred and something episodes on there. Although I think there's a chunk in the middle that was me doing an experiment. Um, go through the list if you're looking for things that have to do with your particular concerns with self-care and you know if you have time most of us have a little bit of an abundance of time check out the the catalog of episodes that that might specifically relate to your present need for self-care and uh, that's not the end of the conversation i just popped into my mind that you know here we are doing this podcast and there's you know a few dozen podcasts on very specific aspects of self-care that go into much more detail than we can get into the kind of detail we just went into, but on other subjects. Sure. Uh, FusionHealthRadio.com. Really easy. Right. Find them all there. Okay. Uh, and everywhere else where you find uh, podcasts. Podcasts. So anyway, self-care, what I would say, given the, the present situation we're all in with uh, isolation with our family or with uh, roommates or with uh, ourselves is patience. If you find yourself trying to fiddle around and getting fidgety or getting reactive or getting impatient, uh, find patience, find personal space, have a bath. I mean, I'm supposed to be some kind of badass martial artist and I really enjoy a bath with candles and essential oils. So I'm probably being laughed at by all of my fighting combat brethren and sisters, but at the same time, hey, self-care is about returning from a state of uh, hyper arousal to a state of deep self-awareness and reflection. So that kind of goes back to the previous conversation. But if you're in an environment that you can't deal with, then deal with your inner environment. And I sort of brought, I brought up that idea that the, the biggest thing to be aware of as humans is we're always adapting to our environment. So if you're not doing everything or you're doing what you can about your inner adaptability, then do what you also can about your environment. I mean, feng shui can be taken a lot of different ways, but changing the way your environment is around clutter. I often tell my patients, just rearrange your house. What? Why would I do that? Because then you have a new set of associations with, with how you move, what, what, where things are. And it's neuroplastically uh, a, a bit of a boost because you have to, to reset your expectations. And, and again, that part of the mind that's always predicting stuff. Well, there's and, a, a feng shui teaching that says if you, um, the idea around spring cleaning is about moving stuck energy, uh, move 27 things in your house, which is a thing. I remember reading about that. Um, is another way to sort of free up 
stuck energy that's in the house. And mm -hmm. that stuck energy invariably is, um, um, for myself, I know that when I clean up my room, if I were to turn this camera around, <laughs> you would see the current state of my brain. If I was to clean up the room, then all of a sudden my brain would go, ah. You know. uh, I do it. I do it. I don't know. I would say compulsively, but I rearranged my my room, the the main kind of living room area, after my son moved out because he needed a, an extra desk desk, and it's still here. And I thought, hey, this this could be a cool setup, and uh, I feel considerably different in my space. Mm -hmm. So yeah. rearrange your space because you're adapting to your environment, and if you can adapt the environment to you, then it's it's like free energy, free mojo. Yep. Uh, people need to receive. If it's attention, affection, touch, things like that, we need to receive. And if we can't receive, you know, it's no surprise to me that Zoom suddenly went from this somewhat useful tool for business people and doctors to the most used app, you know, in, in, in modern life, because we need to connect. And if you can't physically touch someone, you can still be touched by someone, mm -hmm. right? In, in that sense of emotion and sentiment and stuff. And we need to predict that. If we can't predict some kind of way to receive connection, we're going to start coming up with more looping. Yeah. Right? Uh, I'm always drawn to uh, podcasts uh, that have uh, personal stories. And um, it's because it's a very intimate thing to have somebody talking to me right into my ear, uh, right into, into my brain. Um, and that totally is a way of connecting. Um, and uh, I mean, I, after after the after the podcast, let me, let me show you some of the the, the the group pictures that I've had. All I think that we had nine of us the other day between my dad, who's ninety one, and my um, uh, my nephew, who's um, nineteen. <laughs> all of us on Zoom all at the same time. <laughs> nice. <laughs> just, That's just actually becoming a thing. People are doing. I've seen that uh, in a few places. Yeah. Well, you know, half of the call is actually trying to get my dad to press the right button so that his microphone works, right? It's, That's it's also of, becoming a thing. <laughs> it's, 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 it's comedy gold. No, dad, dad, push the button in the middle. What button? I don't see the button. Anyways, it's great. A lot of fun. So, yes, totally. There, there is a way to, you know, if we can uh, go back in time, reach out and touch someone. Yeah, and, and even to, to focus on those memories, you know, the memories of your, your most touching or sensual interactions with the world. And get outside, man. You need sunlight. You need fresh air. You know, for no other reason that sunlight will obliterate COVID-19. So get out there and put all your, you know, two or three shows ago, we had talked about the metaphor of going to Mars in a, in a sort of spacesuit to go shopping and then to come home and clean off your spacesuit and blah, blah, blah. If you haven't seen that, I think it's a really concise way of helping people deal with the, the whole uh, infectious barriers phenomenon, things like that. But um really important to be outside really important to notice that you are not trapped uh by some external system of control you are collaborating in in a social intention to have the less, least amount of dead people at the end of this yeah you no know, and then there, there's lots of ratios as to who's actually right about exactly what's going on but the only thing any, any one of us can do that's the most meaningful right now is don't be a dick like don't just be an impatient person who risks other people's lives because that's for real happening you know
So funny thing about control is that it's either coming from a place of benefit or a place of um, avoiding some kind of projected belief of harm or consequence or damage or danger. And that goes back to the puppy's nose. It's your choice when you're thinking about self-care and how to control your environment, how to control your state of emotional well-being, uh, how to control how much you're eating or not eating or what you're eating. Make sure that you're coming from a place of, I want to do something good instead of I want to avoid something bad. Because when you start thinking about avoiding bad, you start getting that periscope of danger and you're going to want comfort food and then what you're doing isn't self-care anymore, it's self-control. Right? And self-control is a very double-edged sword. What's happening in, in my experience with a lot of people, and this is another big meme that's going on, is we're all going to walk out of here and I'm wearing literally my uh, polar bear pajama pants because how often do I get to wear my polar bear pajama pants and do something growing up like a podcast? <laughs> but, you know, the, the funny thing that's out there is that we're all going to be uh, 10 pounds heavier, heavier at the end of this. And uh, <clears throat> let's not add to the momentum of that particular bad idea. One thing I've noticed is, you know, I, I used to shop almost every day because I love fresh vegetables. Now I'm going into town maybe once, twice a week if I have to. And so many vegetables are going off because everyone's buying things that last a long time. Right. So yeah, I think I the best thing we could do for our economy, for our grocery stores, for our local growers, for the amount of plane fuel that's burning into the sky to get your vegetables to your local store, eat your veggies. Now, now you're doing five different kinds of karma and it's a heck of a lot better than chomping on crap. This is a great time to experiment with uh, different cooking styles, yeah. And and you know, I mean, the the idea of uh, food being convenient, um, uh, convenience isn't healthy. Uh, so why not take the time to um, I don't know, make asobuco or you know, mm. dig into something that's going to take you a long time. Make some risotto, something that's going to take a lot of time and effort and energy because you have the time to do it. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could bring my son onto this because. Um... I did my absolute best to feed him while he was here. And I mean, I wrote a 600 page cookbook, so I'm not a horrible cook. And uh, uh, he, he was like, wow, this is really good. Oh, wow, this is really good. And I'm like, yeah, that's my self care is if I'm in the kitchen making really good food, hours can go by. Puppy's nose is in, in the flavor profile. It's not in the conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. yeah, yep. Cooking can save your mind. It can save your puppy. It can get you out of your cage. Yeah, I, I've been looking at uh, traditional um, recipes online. Uh, my folks come from Sardinia, and looking at some of those foods, oh, man. <laughs> the 10-pound warning that you gave there, <laughs> I, I, I could use the 10 pounds, but I think I might be able to gain a few more than that if I actually dig into some of these things. But it's well, like, you know I, what? I don't think good food means you have to eat it all all of the time, every day. Well, th that was my point, is that you know my memory of that type of food is... Um, my mom cooking for um, two armies and then storing, you know, most of whatever she made in a huge freezer and then dishing that out over time, right? Just for the sake of economy. Yeah, well, that's and, what I was doing when my son was here is like, I'll make a big pot of this and then the rest of it's going in the freezer in little Ziploc bags for me during my next few weeks of hanging out by myself. So I get to eat mm -hmm. gourmet leftovers for, well, until yeah. my freezer's empty. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. There's, there's, uh, we, we, we have the, uh, the opportunity right now to actually invest in things that are um, simple and slow, slow food. Yep. I think is is uh, is a is a big thing around self care, and I mean, like I said before, that we've said before, the ideas of eating foods that are uh, crap for the body, you know, uh, sugar, alcohol, um, any kind of uh, hardcore drugs or whatever it is that people would want to do to abuse themselves, are definitely the things that um, uh, they make time go faster. I think they make this sort of mania come up. I don't know. I, 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 I'll, I'll get off my soapbox here in a second. But I think the the, the, the crappier I eat, um, I've noticed with myself in the past, the more um, jittery and jumpy and um, anxiety-ridden I feel about life. The healthier I eat, the more, pff, yeah, whatever I can be about things. And not that I want to be totally flippant or unaware of what's going on in the world right now. Um, but if I can do things for myself that are a little bit more uh, calm, uh, or calming, like paying attention to cooking some traditional food. I'm going to do that as opposed to um, eating some rotten fast food or something like that that's just going to make me crazy. Yeah, it's all about compulsion. Mm. If you're feeling a compulsive need, an addictive need, a reactive looping need to, I don't know, numb yourself because you feel like you're living in a cage of some kind and that's true for a lot of people i'm not mocking anyone judgment free zone i'm yeah. a big puffy ball of empathy that's all i that's all i got uh, but if you respond to a compulsion compulsively start thinking about that as a mathematical thing you're just adding more and more to the same momentum you know the same grip on the wheel of um you know i'm going to crash this car at some point because i just don't care right I think this is a, a big opportunity for reflection. Uh, part of me feels like it's um, a good thing in a lot of ways, the fact that we all have to sort of stop. Um, I had friends the other day lamenting the fact that uh, there's going to be no, no new iPhone release in September. <laughs> First world problems. <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. And I, I was <laughs> just like, really? That's what you're thinking about right now? You know, like, I don't really care. That's my favorite part. I check social media twice a day, and I usually end up touching in on some conspiracy thing just because it's, in a way, entertaining. Um, sometimes it's really disturbing, but uh, it's so affirming to me as a human being that so many people are speaking to the benefit of this very strange encounter we're having. Mm -hmm. The reflection, the reunification of deeper relationship um so just so many things that people are are really touching in on you know and 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 and, and the healing that's happening for some people it's it's pretty profound well it's not just some people it's everything that's being healed right now i think well yeah i mean you see so many things like dolphins in venice or there's people in in some city in northern india looking at the himalayas for the last time and the first time in 30 years and stuff like you know we're, we're, we're learning lots about the fact that this isn't all some big crazy machine. There's lots of choices. Mm, yeah. And the um, big choice is, is how long we're all going to be stuck in here. Yeah, I was going to get to that next. I mean, the, the, the last part of our, our title today, um, uh, Sanity, Self-Care, and Six More Weeks of Isolation. Um, that was my big curiosity. Uh, why six weeks? What's the, what's, how, how do you figure the math on that? So... 
um, please go back to that episode on barriers and, and what's, I think it's called uh, COVID-19, what's important now? I think it came up about two or three weeks ago. It's If you start watching and I start talking about be, like, being an astronaut on Mars, you're watching the right episode. So I used to be a bit of a survivalist and that means I've studied disasters and all of that kind of stuff in, in a fairly technical way because I used to also work in emergency emergency preparedness um, which is where you learn a lot more detail about that so these things typically go in the sense of you know pandemics or you know big infections uh, in three-week cycles part okay. of it has to do with just human behavior Part of it has to do with the predictable supply of a lot of resources. And in this case, it has to do with the, you know, two week average for people to get or not get symptomatic with uh, this particular in infectious, you know, con condition. So um, if we're all doing our best with social isolation, and we see this in some places that are very successful, uh, right now, I think British Columbia in Canada is doing very well because we're not seeing any significant rise uh, in the ratio of, you know, people who are admitted, people who are actually tested and diagnosed and people who survive uh, compared to people who actually die. So we're, we're flattening the curve, as people say. Now, depending on the community you live in and it's what I would call social maturity or social consciousness, a lot of people are kind of pushing against that. Like, I want to get out now. I want to get back to my gym. I want to get back to my yoga class. I want to get back to this. I want to get back to that. Uh, I want to get back to the bar or whatever it is that you're in a hurry to get back to. The people who are chomping at the bit to get back to things are always going to push that. And if there is a latent uh, uh, COVID-19 infection and in all the ways that you can pick it up in, in the sense of, I don't know, even the, I mean, the biggest thing I think to be aware of is those little machines you put your card in everywhere you go to shop. You know, if we all suddenly go out and bust out and go shopping and aren't wearing gloves and aren't wearing masks, then we're going to get this new bloom. So that's going to spike the curve. And then we're all going to say, oh, everyone locked down for another three weeks. So we have this, we're at the three week average for most people who are doing self-isolation now. So unless we have a community that's like, yay, the three weeks are over, run for the rave party or whatever you want to do. Um, then you're going to see that second balloon. So there's going to be the government saying, oh my God, it's, you know, this is how much more damage it's going to do to our, you know, say economy and people's lives. I put that in the other order of people's lives and oh yeah, the economy. Um, and then we're going to see that second wave and then we're going to see the third wave. So when we're all looking at the, the best outcome for everyone, but also just the natural awareness that when the ambient temperature of the outside gets to 80 degrees Fahrenheit or about 23, 4 degrees Celsius, which would annihilate the, the virus just based on the mechanics of, of how that structure in the universe works. Um, that's going to be its end kind of point for its ability to just exist in, in the, the ambient atmosphere. You know, that doesn't mean if you're in a store with air conditioning, you're in a better place. Uh, but those people are doing everything that they can as well. So that's going to really flatten the curve when we hit that average temperature, you know, of about 24 degrees Celsius during the day. You know, so all um, of this is going to pile up around, you know, hopefully kind of early mid-June. In the northern hemisphere. Well, yeah, but again, I'm just saying that, that, that that's another part of the condition is, you know, if, if we're to say why six more weeks, well, I mean, there's this other kind of... Uh, 
shear points to the graph when you know temperatures start to get high enough that the you know people just walking around will be uh you know doing a certain kind of cleansing if you will sure and but, 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 but the main thing is those three three-week waves that happen just because of social conditioning and our natural instinct to push against boundaries that are put in place around us right and my my point on suggesting um the northern hemisphere is that i'm aware that we have people who listen from the southern hemisphere where they speak english a lot right. more people than um than we probably know these days um and i would think that uh the idea of getting out while the getting's good is probably what's pushing them to uh, want to push push against that whole idea of social isolation so it's important for them as well yeah, and then there's this sort of boogeyman of what happens if this comes back in the fall and all of these other things and whether or not we're all going to get vaccinated around the world. And, you know, those these are kind of big conscious concerns for most people who are, you know, dealing with that possibility. But the reality is that um, given how governments work and what we're all trying to do with statistics as clinically trained people, six more weeks would be the absolute sanest thing to just do to make sure we're not going to get a bunch of blips on the curve because people aren't thinking is it over i think it's over let's go to the park let's all get together and play tag football mm -hmm. which is a really fun thing to do and i can't wait so <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah for sure um you said something a, a second ago that uh, uh, i wanted to pick up on and i'm aware that uh, how long we are for time but hopefully you can speak to this quickly the idea of wearing gloves and a mask um, that's a big debate that's actually going on right now uh, that I see on social media, whether we should be wearing masks in public or not. Uh, here in Canada, anyways, uh, we have our own um, sort of um, voices from above, uh, the authorities telling us what we should be doing. Um, and then there's social media, which sometimes contradicts that. Um, what's your take on that? Um, there's, there's two things that are really important to be aware of. One is there's a lot of people who carry this around who are pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. So if you have a mask and you're carrying this around, you're protecting other people even if you're fit, healthy, and have no concerns because you're under 30 years old and so few people statistically are going to actually get this and then uh, get severe respiratory you know, distress syndrome and stuff like that. So. Um, that that's the social boundary kind of arrogance of uh, thinking you're beyond this whole situation is it's not about you. Right. You know, you and I did a podcast about this on February the 2nd when this first came knocking on our door. And my biggest concern is most people aren't really glove mask aware. And I could do this if I ran around my house to get a couple of things in t together. And also the fact that a lot of people are just listening to this, not watching it. But what I'd like to do if I was to do it is to have a mask on and a glove on and just sit there and keep adding sticky notes to the glove and the mask of every person I get within a few feet of or everything that I touch. And everything that I unconsciously do, because I'm wearing a mask to go into town. And if I get itchy, I might pull my mask a little bit to adjust it around my goatee or my nose. And now everything that's on my hand, all those sticky notes that are on my hand are on my mask. And if I touch my mask and then unconsciously touch something else, all the sticky notes on my glove and my mask, which are stacking up to be a pretty big pile of sticky notes or potential infections, are now on the the little, what do they call the thing you put your card in? The little... Uh, chip reader? Card reader? Okay, card reader. It's like a, it's like a little ATM for your grocery store or whatever. Mm -hmm. So just think about this as sticky notes. I mean, in our previous podcast, we talked about it as Martian gerbils. <laughs> 
you know, because I like metaphors that make kids laugh, right? But if, if we were to talk about this in the visual metaphor, sticky notes, the real important thing about masks and gloves is, gloves are, you have to be mask and glove aware that everything you touch, that every, every time you touch your mask, every time you do everything else, how you take these things on, how you wash afterwards, all of this, that's what actual medical barriers are about. And there's, I mean, I've seen some really great videos, people using dye to show people how to wash their hands by, by dyeing some surgical gloves. Great example, but I haven't seen anyone really do a good uh, visual metaphor for the mask thing. But, you know, we are getting more and more uh, information this way. We're getting more educated this way. <clears throat> so the more we all dive into this with masks and gloves, and I, I think of it as kind of like cosplay. You know, we're all we're all playing Halloween and we're all trying to avoid becoming zombies. So let's let's do our best by becoming more mask and glove aware and not be the person who doesn't care about what you do to other people, because that's not a humane thing to do. It's an arrogant, impatient, adolescent thing to do. There's a lot of homemade recipes for masks that exist online. Um, Have fun. Yeah, I think there's a, an opportunity for, for learning in all of this. And um, uh, I don't know if it's the right word or not, but some sort of sense of adventure that comes from, oh, am I doing it right? How do I do this? How do I make that better? How do I find out? Like going down that sort of rabbit hole of um, if this is what I'm going to do, um, then how do I make it the best possible thing? You so know? If, if I had the ability to magically grab an image and put it up on the screen, it would be a bunch of puppies walking down a path together, wagging their tails. Hmm. Let's all yeah. be good, smart puppies together and keep our noses on what's actually going to solve this. Yeah. Whatever this really turns out to be. Mm. Let's keep sharing really, really potent, meaningful stuff. Let's not go to fear. Let's not go to conspiracies. If we knew how to know, we would know. Right. Well, I'm um, happy to continue um, doing what we're doing here in terms of sharing things. Um, we're always trying to keep our podcast short and sweet, and it never freaking works. <laughs> Especially uh, with this conversation, certainly there's room for it to get bigger and better. But um, I'm going to suggest that we uh, roll this over into um, another two or three podcasts ongoing. Um, was there any more that you wanted to share for the day? Anything? Any final thoughts? Or do what's meaningful for everyone. Do what's meaningful for everyone. It's a great place to leave it. Thank um, you, Anthony. It's a real pleasure to be in touch with you. Yeah, it's uh, it's this is a food for my mind. I this, I'll get a lot of mileage out of this. <laughs> I'll be buzzing around for a while on this one for sure. Okay. Um, I just want to let our listeners and our viewers know uh, where they can tune into more. Um, uh, if you're watching this video, you're probably seeing it via Autoimmune Health Solutions on Facebook. Uh, if you're listening, that is a great place to go to catch up with the other uh, podcast videos that Michael and I have done. Um, if you're watching and you want to tune into other things that Michael and I have talked about in terms of health and wellness, uh, go tune into your favorite source of podcasts and look for Fusion Health Radio. Uh, you'll find this conversation posted there as well. Uh, we're kind of doing that dance between uh, Fusion Health Radio, what it was, and what we want to do next, and uh, conveniently, um, uh, the 
social isolation, Zoom, coronavirus, uh, special ingredient is making us um, <laughs> painfully aware of how it is we could be doing things better. <laughs> so also this will come out tomorrow for those people who are on my email list because I don't have a lot to do tomorrow. Uh, back to doing this solo. And if you're not on my email list, please go to autoimmunehealthsolutions.com and sign up because I often share some really fun stuff. So lots of ways to get in touch. Uh, Facebook, Autoimmune Health Solutions. Facebook, Fusion Health Radio. Uh, podcast, Fusion Health Radio. Website, Fusion Health Radio. And did I miss anything? Autoimmunehealthsolutions.com. There you go. Oh, and since we're doing all these things, because I don't really pay attention to this part, if you're interested in Qigong and mindfulness and breath work, I have uh, a different website. It's called Soma Dao Qigong, S-O-M-A-D-A-O-Q-I-G-O-N-G, somadaoqigong.com, where I teach live online Qigong and meditation and breath work. Awesome. Uh, that's definitely something to put in the show notes um, in terms of the link so people can uh, get right to it. Um, let's call it quits All and right. uh, we'll catch Thank up. Thank you, brother. Next... That was a really fun conversation. Yeah, as always. Uh, we'll see you in the next podcast, Michael. You too.